This is the Arc of Change with Donzel Leggett, a podcast from the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, an organization dedicated to eradicating racism and hate and spreading anti-racism. Listen as Donzel talks about the relevant topics that will inspire you and help build your capability to take action and change the world. Because none of us are doing enough as long as racism still exists. And now, here's your host, Donzel Leggett. Hello and welcome to the 10th episode of Season 2 of The Arc of Change with Donzo Leggett. In this episode, I welcome best-selling author Shireen Daniels to the show to discuss her new book, The Anti-Racist Organization, and to share her story of courageously standing up, speaking out, and taking action to challenge many companies' disingenuous commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and her push to influence the spread of anti-racism throughout the U.K., and ultimately the world. Now let's get started with our show. So I am Donzo Leggett, host of the Arc of Change podcast and founder of the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition, or ARC. Our vision at ARC is to build a racism-free world, and our mission is to provide inspiration, education, and support for you to transform, practice, and spread anti-racism. This begins with our three-step process of personally transforming to anti-racism. The first step is erasing your ignorance about racism and hate. The second step is educating yourself about anti-racism. And step three is building the character and confidence to stand up, speak out, and take action to spread anti-racism and anti-hate and make positive change happen. This process is designed so that any one person can make a difference by committing to anti-racism and anti-hate and then influencing others to do the same. Every single person, no matter who you are, where you sit in society, can make a difference. It's about exercising your agency to act. None of us is insignificant. Any single one of us can drive positive change. But I know that sometimes it's easy to feel powerless. And that's when you have to remember that we're only powerless when we give away our power and hold ourselves back because we don't think we're worthy. We can all be powerful when we exercise our power by believing we're worthy and standing up and speaking out and taking action for who we are and what we believe in. Today's guest is a perfect example of someone who at one time felt powerless, but one day, one day decided to exercise her power to exercise her agency. And now, Shireen Daniels is a powerful voice who inspires and touches hundreds of thousands of people through her written words as a best-selling author, through her spoken voice as a world-renowned speaker, and through her powerful lessons as a paradigm-changing educator. 
Shireen Daniels is next. And she will tell you her story of transformation to unleash her power and her agency to drive positive change. Shireen Daniels is next. Visit us at joinarcc.org. Follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And like us on Facebook. All right, welcome back to the Ark of Change with Donzel Leggett. And it is my absolute pleasure, it's my absolute privilege to have on our show today the incomparable Shireen Daniels. I met Shireen, I think virtually, uh, earlier this year, but uh, recently had the uh, opportunity to meet her in person with my good friend and ARC board member, Tommy Fung, uh, in the UK. Uh, And both Tommy and I can attest to the fact that Shireen is an incredible force of nature who is changing the global landscape of diversity, equity, and inclusion work and unabashedly challenging organizations around the world to focus on anti-racism. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Shireen. She is a best-selling author, the best-selling author of the anti-racist organization Dismantling Systemic Racism in the Workforce, which I've read. It's fantastic. She's also the founder and managing director of HR Rewired, an anti-racism advisory firm that champions racial equity in the workplace. She's also the founder and chair of the African Diaspora Economic Inclusion Foundation, which contributes to reducing the economic inequalities impacting the UK's African diaspora community with specific focus on black female entrepreneurs. Shireen was also recognized as a LinkedIn top voice in 2020 and the winner of the HR Most Influential Thinker in 2021. And if that's not enough, she holds a Bachelor's of Art with honors in business with psychology and a Master of Science in International Human Resources. All of that is impressive. But I can tell you, it is nowhere in comparison to meeting her in person and hearing from her firsthand, which we will do right now. Shireen, my good friend, welcome to the Ark of Change. How are you doing? Oh, um, listen, after that intro, like I know people can't see, but just imagine I'm showing all of my teeth, including my I'm like, oh, listen, I'm easily complimented. So, no, it's amazing to be here. Thank you. That is awesome. That's awesome. Well, I got to meet you and we've been talking uh, certainly, I think, for the last six months, at least I got to read your book. So I know a lot about you, uh, but the audience doesn't. So maybe let's start off by you just telling us a little bit about yourself and then we'll get into your story. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Above and beyond what you've shared, and even a part of me was thinking, "Oh, look, that is me. <laughs> those are those are my little my little accolades." And um, I'm I'm a mother of two, so I have um, two daughters, a, a 14 year old and a four year old, and um, I live just outside of London in Kent. And yeah, I'm trying to think what else I can tell you without like getting into the tea. So yeah, I think I'll just stop there, and then you can ask me whatever you want to ask me. All right. Well. Your story has been profiled, I think, in Forbes. Um, just on LinkedIn alone, you have 80,000 followers. I, I can attest to seeing some of the most powerful uh, 
um, messages and, and, uh, and lessons that you post daily, but I know it all started with your story. So why don't you get into it and tell us about your story? I think like a lot of people, Donzel, I was deeply affected by a kind of combination of events, right? So we had Breonna Taylor, we had George Floyd and my straw that broke the camel's back, if you like, was when I saw the video of Amy Cooper in Central Park back in 2020. And just seeing this woman weaponize her race, I kind of remember sitting in my living room. So, you know, in Kent, the Garden of England, as it's known, hmm. and just thinking about all the different versions of Amy Cooper's that I have worked with and been friends with and even had relationships with, you know, in terms of individuals who somehow felt that their skin colour afforded them to be treated in a completely different way to everybody else. And within the UK at the time, we were kind of sipping our tea, if you like, and, and going, oh, this racism thing, it's so terrible what happened to George Floyd. And, you know, it, isn't it isn't it a relief that we don't have issues with racism over here? And so <laughs> I was like, listen, no, 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 we're, no, 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 that's not what we're going to do. So I ended up recording a video completely unplanned um, for 20 minutes, just speaking about how I felt about the subject matter. So what does it really feel like when you are a black woman in the world of work, particularly here in the UK? And I posted the video on YouTube, but I guess the the start of my journey wasn't so much the recording of the video, it was sharing it publicly. So back in kind of June 2020, I think I must have had about, let's say 3000 LinkedIn followers, and I'm probably being very generous there. Um, so I didn't have a massive profile. I was a quintessential nobody in that I wasn't working for a brand. I'd left the corporate world behind. I'd just finished off maternity leave. I decided I was going to start my own consultancy. Um, so I was just out here in these streets. Do you know what I mean? Doing yeah, I know my what you mean. very best. Yeah, do my very best to be um, the quintessential, well-behaved, um, unoffensive. HR person that just happened to be black. Do you know what I mean? So yes. I really struggled that night about publicly sharing this video. And I remember talking to my partner. Um, well, I wasn't talking. He was talking to me. And I was like, oh, I don't think I can post this. And, hmm. you know, I didn't sleep. I had a little bit, a bit of a breakdown. And he said, well, if you're so, if you're so bothered about this, don't post it. Because he said, I'm seeing the state that you're in. It's like, it's not worth it. So don't post it. And then, you know, and I said, no, I've got to. And when I spent the time to unravel why I was getting myself into such a state, I realised, Donzel, that I'd spent most of my professional career. So, you know, at that time, I think 17, 18 years, my background is, is HR mm -hmm. and, and business. And I realised I spent all that time trying to make sure that I show up in a way that is deemed acceptable to white people. Mm -hmm. So lo and behold, here I am doing the very thing that I've spent all of my career trying not to be, and that is the black person who always makes it about race. And I hadn't realised that was a driving fear, if you like, yeah. which meant it shaped how I 
behaved within the workplace. It shaped how I dealt with overt and covert instances of racism, whether it was directed at me or colleagues or my direct reports or peers. And also how I just always had this internal dialogue with myself that always said every time there was an issue or every time I felt like speaking out, I was like, Shreen, don't do it. Because mm-hmm. you're going to be labelled the troublemaker. It's going to be you that's got to leave the job. It's Because it's always you. It's always us. Yes. Right? And and that, if I'll be really honest, Donzel, it's always, you know, people see what I post about now and they see how I show up and they're like, oh, my goodness, you're so brave and you're so cor- cor- courageous. But what they didn't realise is that at that time, um, looking in the mirror and recognising how I had internalised racism I felt nothing but embarrassment and shame. Wow. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to go and change the world. I was literally like, how? I'm an extroverted introvert. I've got, like you said, I've got all of these degrees. I've got all of this kind of corporate experience. I'm not a pushover. I'm assertive. I'm self-confident. I'm all of these things. And yet, you know, and yet I still navigated this world being very cognizant of feeling like a second-class citizen wow you know and always having to show deference yes do you know what i mean and and for some people thinking oh my goodness i've never worked but that's how i felt Mm -hmm. so it was a very personal journey that i decided to embark on so when i shared that first video and you know i think the they're all on YouTube, so you know if people are bored, you can go and have a look. It's the first one's called my day one video. But when you watch the day two and day three, because by the time I did the first one, I was like, well, I might as well carry on talking. And um, but you can physically see in my countenance, in my face, my body language, I look wrecked. Yes. You know, and then you you slowly saw me learning and unlearning. And you saw me share my views of the world, my perspectives, but then you also saw me marry that with the experience that I have of working with executive teams and leading my own teams and working in a variety of different industries and kind of melding that all together and basically saying that how we've been treating this, how we talk about it, how we, in some instances, act for those that do take action is not enough, you know, because... We've been so scared to name racism. Yeah. But what we never understood is that that, how, that is how it keeps ticking over. You know, it feeds off our apathy. It feeds off our discomfort. It feeds off obedience. Yes. Conditioning, you know. And so that's how I got started through just recording. Like I've got hundreds of videos, which was, and I did live shows and I did all sorts of things. But I thought to myself, if I'm going to do this, let me do this in my way. And that's what you've seen. You know, that's what's played out over the last couple of years. Wow, it's um, very powerful. And there are some commonalities. Uh, I talk about the the way that ARC really was started was um, my reaction to George Floyd's murder. And uh, he was murdered 30 minutes from my house. Um, and I, you know, lead or I'm a board chair for an organization that, uh, supports people like George Floyd who have gone through troubles like he had in his life and are trying to turn their life around. In fact, uh, George had come into one of the nonprofits 
that I, uh, I'm on the board for before. A lot of our staff knew who he was, uh, knew him personally. Uh, so that one hit wow. me very, very hard, hit me very hard. And I had a lot of the similar feelings that you did because I was crafting my career to move uh, to upper levels of, of corporate America, which meant, yes, I'm assertive, like you talked about. Yes, I'm confident. Yes, I know what, what I can do and I speak out. But there were certain things that I did not speak out about. Um, one of them was, you know, I didn't talk a lot about race. I called out issues where I saw them. But uh, race and politics, I really didn't talk a lot about. Um, and I felt like I had to do something at that point. Similar to you, I made a video um, and, and I sent it out on social media. And I'd never done anything like that before. I'm not a social media presence. I really had not been. But um, I felt like I had to do something. Uh, because it was kind of like that same feeling of shame that you had described, you know, am I part of the problem by playing these roles to get to where I want to get to in corporate America and not speaking out enough? Yes, I'd done some things. Yes, I had defended people. Yes, I helped get, you know, people of color into jobs. I did all that, but could yes. I have done more? And I felt like, you know, if, if, if George Floyd be murdered like that, I got to take a risk. I got to step up and say something. So a lot of parallels there. Um, and, and that's what led me to start ARC. Obviously, um, you know, you started HR Rewired. Was, was starting HR Rewired, um, an outcome? Was that a platform or had you already started the company? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about HR Rewired. Yeah, so I had already started the company in October 2019 when um, I was actually having executive coaching at the time. And I remember my um, my coach basically said, listen, you need to you need to be the captain of your own ship, so to speak. And but also part of the very honest conversation that we had was that I was just tired of repeating the same patterns over and over again in different organisations. You know, to me, and it's like you you jump through all these hoops and, you know, I was more than overqualified for the level of position that I had and always hitting that that ceiling that brick wall and just never breaking through to where I perceived I should be and I just said I don't know if I've got the energy to keep doing it so HR Rewired at the time was was really about helping teams collaborate and perform better um, understanding individual drivers. So I'm, I'm, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a psychology major from early in my career. So I'm always fascinated with how our our drivers, our behavioural drivers, so the way we do what we do and why we do what we do, and how that can be harnessed um, for better team performance. So that was always my my interest. Um, but then when George Floyd happened and then we had all of the protests, I paused all of my activity. And to focus on, you know, doing these videos and, and talking and I was being interviewed and I was on the radio. And I just thought then what started to happen is I started to have um, CEOs and founders of, of very large, prominent companies um, reach out to me on LinkedIn and basically say, listen, can you come in and help? Because what you're talking about is not what we're talking about. And we've been doing diversity and inclusion for like the last five, 10, 15 years, thinking that that was solving this problem and we're listening to you and we're listening to our black colleagues and we're basically realizing that we don't have a clue you know and so I just thought well when one request became five and then became ten I was like well I'm just I'm just going to make HR Rewired do that because 
you know, the only way if we want to really optimise performance, if we want to be quite, um, what's the word, callous almost, if you like, right, where we're reducing individuals to economic units of production. But if we do want to have collegiate workforces that are performing, but also where people feel like they can do their best work, we have to re-engineer the way we approach HR, hence HR Rewired. And what better way for me to further what I believe in and what's really important, but also what I feel like the world needs and what I feel like the world of work needs than to really make HR Rewired about anti-racism and racial equity. Um, And I'm happy with that niche, you know, and I I made Mm -hmm. a very, um, what's the word? I was very clear that that's what I wanted us to do when everybody else wanted me to kind of go off and, and, and do other things or address other things. And I was like, no, this is what I want to do. And it is focused on how systemic racism impacts those who are most impacted. And that's for me, that's that's black people, that's African heritage, you know, African heritage people. Yeah. And you, you, you wrote, um, this wonderful book, uh, the anti-racist organization dismantling systemic racism in the workforce. And I, again, I thought you were extremely clear in the book explaining what you just said, what you just talked about that DEI work is not enough. You here in the United States, we have something called allyship. I don't know if allyship is also taken off yes. in the UK. And, yes. and I have been one of the most outspoken people against allyship because to me, it's it's a soft way to allow um, you know basically white executives in the minority uh, or in the majority I should say to feel like they're doing something good by simply saying hey if you are empathetic toward minorities if you pat them on the back if you uh, let yes. them cry on your shoulder and all these things put a, a you know get a badge that says I'm an ally you're doing great you're doing a great job and to me it's an easy out to not do the real work. And the real work is understanding that racism exists. It exists in our society. It's built in. And those who suffer the most from racism, especially systemic around the world, are those who have suffered from colonialism, starting with Africans, but mostly all people uh, who are brown, for the most part, uh, based on where colonial imperialism has taken place. Uh, and um this, this, so I thought in the book, you did a great job of really talking about what the, what the real bottom line is. And so I wonder when you're, these CEOs who've called you in, um, and since you've written the book, I don't know how many of them have read the book, but as you, as you're talking to these prospective clients and you're breaking it down to them, what is their reaction in terms of, well, yeah, we've been doing DEI for 10 years and we do courageous conversations and we have allies and all that kind of thing. Uh, when you talk to them about, yes, but here's what really needs to happen and how the people who are in your workforce need to feel and the culture needs, what, what are those, how do those conversations go? And are there some that are, that are non-resistant? Are there some that actually are listening and doing something different? I think I, I used to say it was a third, a third and a third, right? Which is kind of typical of any uh, kind of change or transformation program, isn't it? Um, you know, a third on the bus, a third are a bit on the fence and a third are actively saboteurs or quiet saboteurs, you know, even through not doing anything. Um, I would pretty much say that the out of all the CEOs that I've spoken to and worked with, I'm going to group them all together here. Um, you're probably looking at about 10% who are committed 
and capable of making the what I would call the tough decisions. And I'm putting the tough in inverted commas because it's a tough decision when you are a leader who is in the majority group, yeah. right? Which is in, in the case of systemic racism, it's white majority leadership teams. And your peers are white. Your network is white. The majority of senior leaders or anybody with a management title or role and responsibility is white. Yeah. And you know that society is optimised for whiteness. And you also are living and working within parts of the world. And I think here about the US, for example, where becoming anti-racist is very politicised because people don't like the idea of honing in on race and racism because they think that in itself is an example of racism. Right. So you have all of these different challenges around what does it mean to lean into this and actively become an anti-racist leader or an anti-racist organisation that is governed by the day-to-day world that you inhabit, but also that values and the belief systems that you have about how you've thought about racism. You know, so often people think, you know, it's bad people who are racist, right? And I'm not a bad person. I don't hire bad people. Mm-hmm. I have nice people, you know. Um, my friends are not racist. I'm certainly not racist, you know. And you see, so you get into all of this. So you you really have to be patient. Be patiently impatient, I always say. But you're, you're, I'm often looking for the CEOs who to your point, recognise the systemic elements of racism. So what they don't do in the nicest way possible is they're not wasting my time trying to convince me that they don't have an issue with racism within their business. Um, Hmm. But instead they say, I've just accepted it. I want to get on and do the work. How do we do it? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's a very, very different approach. And there's not that many individuals who take that approach if I'm honest because everybody else is almost looking for an excuse not to do the work which is why they then hide behind well we've committed this for diversity and inclusion like you said and Mm -hmm. they rattle off all these different things that they've done but I know and you know that that is not even touching the sides in terms of making a difference yeah there was a there was a study done that backs up exactly what you said one year after George Floyd's murder uh, of of uh major corporations here in the U.S., their leaders, uh, as well as the folks in their company. And they asked them a, a question, um, are you committed to helping your company fight racism and injustice within your organization? And uh, 95% of executives, uh, corporate executives said yes, uh, where 75% of, of, of non-managers, so at the lowest level of the corporation, said yes. But when you ask the question, um, do you feel like the focus and attention that diversity, equity, inclusion is is getting in your corporation is blown out of proportion? Almost 80% of executives said yes. Now, they're the ones who, 95% of them said they're committed, and they're the ones who actually are driving these initiatives, yet 80% of them said they feel it's blown out of proportion, whereas only 30% of their the masses of the organization, the workforce, the non-managers said yes. So clearly there is a, a, a dichotomy here and an uh, inverse proportionality in terms of what the commitment 
is being voiced versus what the genuine commitment is. And it, it just backs up 100% what you're saying. I did want to ask you, what drove you to write the book? Because I thought the book was well done. I thought it was very clear. And I think it, it lays out really well, even what we try to talk about here at ARC. But what drove you to, to write the book? And what do you want the key message of the book to be? So what drove me to write the book was just a culmination of literally the thousands upon thousands of conversations that I've had. That's either one-to-one, that's either facilitating different listening forums and being part of webinars and doing keynotes and being in meetings and being invited into all these spaces is, um, you know, the expert in inverted commas, right? They just wanted my views on fill in the blanks, anything connected to racism. And I was in particular really, if I'm really honest, I was quite frustrated and disappointed with some of the organisations that I had spoken to who then decided that their business was not ready to become anti-racist. They wanted to start off a bit more from the beginning. This is their words, not mine. Okay. So they would say things like, um, oh, we want to start with unconscious bias training, or we want to put our managers through an inclusion program, or I think you use a really good example we want to do some more work on having courageous conversations and challenging conversations. And basically they were just twirling <laughs> around to use my Kenya Moore phrase from Housewives <laughs> of Atlanta, right? Just twirling around in a way to avoid tackling racism, you know? And so I can, you know, when you said earlier on that you um, have a real like be in your bonnet, as we like to say in the UK, about allyship, right, yes. and how allyship is used. Yes. And that was exactly it. So I was hearing all of these people, their sob stories, because for a long time, Donzel, I was like this vessel of white guilt because I made myself super available. I'm not anymore, but I used to do that. And these, oh, can I talk to you? And it's literally, they just wanted to offload how they felt and how they didn't realise. And then you're going, okay, cool. So this is what you can do. But actually they weren't interested in the action. They just wanted to go through the process of relieving some of that guilt. And then when they felt like they had the conversation, so they always used to say, oh, I feel so much better talking to you. And then they would go off and carry on doing what they've always done. While at the same time, I would have colleagues from those same businesses keep DMing me and saying, listen, I don't understand why they're not well, I do understand why they're not doing anything, but they can't no longer use this phrase that's become, I don't know what to do and I'm scared of, of saying or doing the wrong thing, which became, if we want to talk about what 2021 was, that was like the epitome of everyone saying, oh, I'm not really sure what to do, despite the fact that, you know, there's my book, there's there's lots of information yes. out there over yes. the last two years. I'm not the only person that's written about this. No. And... Um, it was just the same. And I'm going to use the word excuses. They're, they weren't reasons. Yeah. They were excuses. And at the same time, I was thinking about the conversations I had with the CEOs um, and the executives who did want to do something and they committed resource and budget and they did not try and guide me into watering it down, you know, to me. So I, I've got examples of businesses that basically said, yes, um, we would love to bring you in. Um, but do you have white people on your team? Because we feel like it would be better if we could, if, you know, the business would respond to more white people talking about racism than a black woman. 
um, can you not mention George Floyd because we have a rule that we don't talk about politics in the workplace? Um, you know, can you make sure that when you talk about this, that you um, just really think about, you know, body language and tone of voice because we don't want to upset our white colleagues because it's really important that we get them on board. So you you basically had all of this DEI effort <laughs> wow. focused on easing white discomfort or cajoling or trying to influence white majority management teams or even colleagues, right, right. to care about this. And I just kept hearing this over and over again. And then what I kept saying to people is, is but the actions that you put in place to make white people feel comfortable and there's never going that nobody is ever going to be truly comfortable with this subject matter. So it's kind of like a fallacy, really. Right. But everything that you're doing is very different to the actions that you will put in place to address systemic racism. So that was kind of like point one. And then the other, the big kind of red flag, if you like, was organisations that literally thought that I could help them recruit more black people because by that time I was I had quite a large following um, on social media. And, you know, it, it's my community, that's what I refer to, to people who engage with me on social media, mm -hmm. are from all walks of life, all ethnicities, but I do have a very strong um, community of following of black people all over the world. Yes. And um, so they wanted to tap in because they thought that, having more black people so this idea that representation means more representation means I, we don't have an issue with racism right. so the more black people we can show on our website and our marketing <laughs> materials right. and in our adverts and in our brand campaigns is to show that we're not racist so if you can't help me get more black people shireen then like you can't really help us at all wow do you know what i mean yes. so so all of that was, and which is why, um, and you will see this in, in, in the book, the book could have been three times the size, you know what I mean? It could have been like three times longer than it was. But what I did is I took real quotes from real individuals and I didn't over-index on the quotes, I just showed them because I wanted to just hold a mirror up to even individuals who believe that they're allies and try to show them this is how systemic racism continues to do its best work through what feels like really innocuous statements around the board will never sign this off if it's only for black people or, you know, can't do right for doing wrong. And I've reached out to black people and they've not really been receptive of my help because, and you know, the individuals are not cognizant of white saviorism. They're not cognizant that they're approaching this almost like a charity donation. Yes. Um, and so I wanted to hold up a mirror without over-indexing on that and let people either recognise themselves in that or draw their own opinions from what they're seeing, which are very real conversations, you know, and that's probably partly why the book has landed so well, because it's not abstract, you know, there is there is nothing um, kind of loose and airy fairy as we like to say in the UK. It's like this is this is the reality in short sentences. Um, without the trauma porn. So, you know, it's not pages and pages of, of traumatic stories of racism. It's context. It's embedding it within business and thinking about it as a strategic imperative, but it also highlights this idea of choice, not force. I'm not going to force anybody to care and I'm not going to force anybody to do something. But if you want to, stick with me and we'll go very far. Yeah, for those who haven't read the book... Um... I will tell you that the way Shireen wrote this book, it, it it reads almost like when Tommy and I had dinner with her in the UK 
and she was just talking and we were just having a conversation. It reads really like that. It's not a heavy, heavy uh, a book where you're, you know, you got to really motivate yourself to read it or it's uh, it's not like that. It is a book that's really common sense, but conversational. She writes as if she's talking, as if you're having a conversation. So I would, again, I would strongly recommend the book. And Shireen said there are a lot of books out there on this topic. What to me would differentiate this one is the conversational nature, uh, but also the fact that anyone who's worked in any organization, you will see yourself in this book. There are things that have been said to you or ways you have felt uh, perceived that certainly will be in this book, whether you are a person of color or actually whether you're a white person who maybe didn't realize the how, how your behaviors and your comments, uh, the impact that they were having. So I just think it's a, it's a fantastic uh, book, Shireen. Um, I did, before we, we check out, I did want to ask you a little bit about the other organization that you started, which, um, which is, is very impressive to me as well. Uh, which is um, the the African uh, Diaspora um, Economic Inclusion Foundation. Uh, and I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about why did you start this organization and why is it so important for all of us to understand why it's important to focus on Black female entrepreneurship? Yeah, so I... Um... I can I can give you like what I would call like a really PR type statement and say, oh, yeah, it's really important. But if in all honesty, Donzel, I I said to myself that if I am going to do this work and make a living off this work, I have to find a way to be able to give back. And I didn't want to be one of those individuals that, you know, who wait until they run like a multi-billion dollar organization and then they start a foundation. Do you know what I mean? I was like, look, this, I have to build and bring people with me as I go. It's, it's been anyone that works with me knows that's kind of like my mantra. This is not just about shereendaniels.com. This is about all of us. My, our job, my job is to bring as many people with me as I can. So setting up the foundation, ADEF for short was an extension of that. Um, The economic empowerment piece, I think, is crucial from a global perspective. It's crucial from a UK perspective, from a US perspective. And because what we're talking about here is fundamentally recognising that we don't have access to generational wealth for lots of different reasons, lots of different contexts. But we if we want to stop going through this same circle cycle for want of a better word sorry if we, if we want to stop going through the same cycle of something traumatic happening to a black person and then we have to then go what I call door knocking for allyship um it has its role but it also is very disempowering so I know as somebody who runs my own company and you know there's no VC funding there's no debt finance I bootstrapped everything <laughs> and wow. did it all myself wow um everything that I've done you know I was I was a business of one for a very long time and so I know the ins and outs I know what it's like to be working all around the clock I know to feel exposed I know how to how you've got to manage risk in a very very different way and I also saw even since you know the global protests of 2020 everyone was talking about oh you know when you look at VC funding and 
you know, 0.2% goes to black people, even less goes to women. Wow. And then if you fast forward two years on, Donzel, the numbers haven't changed. Jeez. You know, it's, and but what happened is a lot of the um, programs and initiatives that were being run were so worried about focusing in on black founders. They kind of went, oh, we want underrepresented founders or, you know, whatever the terminology is. And then when you do that, just like DEI, yeah. the people who are most impacted always keep getting left out. Yes. Do you know what I mean? And so I was like, well, like if that's what you want to do, all the other big institutional funders and, you know, if that's your call and because you feel uncomfortable or because you don't want to lean into the black community. And I know there are the people and institutions that do do that. So I'm going to give them a big tick for that. Yep. Um, but I was like, I want to be specific. And I also want to recognise the nuance of what it's like to be a black woman who is running a business because we're also impacted by systemic racism, but we're also impacted by patriarchy. Yes. Society is optimised for men. Yep. Do you know what I mean? And so I, I wanted to hone in on that and then also think about what is that opportunity that unlocks when you recognise, I think I did see a study in the US actually, that black female entrepreneurs are kind of the biggest entrepreneurial class that's rising. Um, part of that is through some of the experiences that people have in the world of work, like I did. You know, yes. I, I didn't start out wanting to be an entrepreneur. I was fleeing the corporate world. Um, but now that I'm here, I'm loving it and I would never go back. But there are ways in which we can support and there are ways in which we can make it easier. Um, and I would just like to know that I can help somebody who looks like me, you know? Wow. Wonderful. Wonderful. Shireen, thank you so much. You know, our, our vision here at ARC is to build a racism free world. Uh, it's not just about us as individuals. It's about everyone in the world. We feel we can make the world better if you eliminate racism. And our, our, our mission is to, is to do that by providing inspiration, education and support to everyone uh, so they can transform themselves to be able to practice and spread anti-racism. I see so many parallels about the work that you're doing. Uh, I am so inspired by you and uh, I'm so happy and again, pleased and feel so privileged that you joined us today. I would like to offer you the chance to provide any final word you'd like to leave our audience with. Oh goodness me. Um, I would just, I would say we're not powerless you know, and maybe somebody, you know, somebody might look me up and because I'm very Googleable and they think, oh my goodness, she's she's doing all of these things. She's got her book, you know, I've got a conference in 2023, which is going to be amazing. There's some stuff I want to do with TV, but just remember that I started as a mum who recorded a video in her bedroom, basically saying enough is enough, you know, and what I did is I took back the power that I had gifted away. You know, for 17 years in the corporate space, I felt powerless and I needed to take it back. So everything that I've done since has been a version of me taking it back. And so I would want maybe somebody to look at me and think, what's my version of taking back my power? And how much more of a difference could I make in, you know, either my sphere of influence or some of the things that I really care about? And then understand the compound interest impact of having somebody like you, Donzel, Tommy, who I met myself. And then, you know, all these other people who care 
about working in this in working and living and playing within a socially just society um, and imagine how much we can accomplish together you know um but we have to take back our power as the first step so that's what i would like to that's what i'd like to leave you with that is so awesome and directly aligned with the message that we try to espouse at arc is that every single person can make a difference. None of us are powerless as long as we take accountability to use our power. And you may not be someone who wants to put a video out like Shireen did or like I did, but that doesn't mean that you can't influence your parents or your siblings or your friends or your coworkers. And if you as one person can influence five people, that's six people now. And if they can influence five more and 10 more, and 20 more, the next thing you know, you've gone from being one person to 80,000, like like uh, Shireen has in terms of her LinkedIn followers. So thank you so much, Shireen. What an awesome interview. And please tell me you'll come back again sometime. I will always come back. Just keep the tea, keep the tea warm, and I'll be there. <laughs> All right. I look forward to either seeing you here in the U.S. or I'll be back in the U.K. at some point. Thanks again. You are wonderful. Keep doing what you're doing and inspiring us all. Thank you. Visit us at joinarcc.org to learn more about ARC. Donate to our cause and join the movement that will change the world. To find the ARC of Change podcast with Donzo Leggett and learn more about the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition or ARC, please visit us at joinarc.org. You can also subscribe to the Arc of Change with Donzo Leggett on your favorite podcast hosting sites. I greatly look forward to our next episode, an opportunity to inspire you to become part of the movement that will change the world by eradicating racism once and for all. Until next time, stay safe and continue to ask yourself, am I doing enough? And remember that none of us are doing enough as long as racism and hate still exist. Thanks for listening and goodbye. The Arc of Change podcast with Donzel Leggett is brought to you by the Anti-Racism Commitment Coalition. To learn more about Arc, donate to our cause and join the coalition, visit joinarcc.org. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And share this podcast to help spread our mission to change the world by ending racism once and for all. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay safe and be inspired.